Have you ever seen those posts on social media, the 10 wealthiest preachers in America? Nearly all of those are health and wealth preachers, prosperity preachers. And those posts, sadly, are couched in our culture that's infected with rampant cynicism. And that rampant cynicism that depicts the culture in which we are living, that our kids and grandkids are growing up in, is coupled with a culture that is increasingly critical of nearly every religious person, and I would venture to say Christians in particular. And so sometimes in our culture, those cynics, those critics, reach for the broadest paintbrush they can find and try to paint every Christian leader they can find as manipulating money grubbers. Do you know how some respectable Christian leaders have responded to the cynicism of our day, the criticism of our day regarding preachers and money? They just don't talk about it. Let's just avoid the subject. You know, if we just avoid entirely this whole subject of money, we're not going to be in the crosshairs of the critics. We're not going to have to live with the cynicism of the uh, growing anti-Christian culture that we're living in. But how does the mission of Christ's church get funded? How are the people of God supposed to know what the needs are so they can give to the mission of the church? Are faithful pastors just to avoid the subject altogether? You know, we're not the first generation to be faced with this problem. In fact, it's a very old problem of leaders, pastors, missionaries who are calling on God's people to fund his mission, that the gospel might go to the, to the nations and the generations. And yet doing so while living in the crosshairs of the critics, the cynics. What's the answer? Join me please in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this morning we're continuing our study. You know, probably not. If you have, let me know later. But you know, this is one of those passages that doesn't necessarily grip you with this mesmerizing truth. It, it comes across as rather practical of how Paul was directing this church to handle giving toward the mission of the church in a way that was above integrity. I'm calling the sermon simply, Who Can We Trust? Who Can Be Trusted With God's Money? Have you found 2 Corinthians 8? I'm going to read it aloud. You follow along silently as I read 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 16. This is the word of God. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. 
we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So what's going on behind this? What's the story behind this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church? Many of you here last Sunday heard Pastor Mark introduce this passage, uh, beginning of verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, and we're continuing that today. But the background is this. Not all of you were here. So here's the background. The, let me call it the mother church. I hate to use that term, but the mother church in Jerusalem was going through some hard times. Some of the believers, the Jewish believers at the church in Jerusalem were just going through very difficult financial hardship. And Paul, the apostle, wanted to help. He wanted to do all he could to help. And so he'd planted a number of churches around, especially the Gentile world. And so he's calling on those Gentile churches to help. And he says in one place that it was as if these Gentile churches owed a debt to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, the mother church that was kind of the beginning of the New Testament Christian church. Everything kind of moved out from there. And so here's the Apostle Paul writing letters and visiting these Gentile churches that he helped plant. And he's saying, folks, why don't we pool our resources? Why don't we work together and raise some money to send back to the folks in Jerusalem who are going through particularly difficult times financially. I was reading toward the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I found a few sentences there that help, help us understand what motivated the apostle to launch this multi-month, multi-church effort. Let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 25 to 27. It says this. This is from the book of Romans. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it. And indeed, here it is, indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. In and the Apostle Paul is reminding the Roman church here that, you know what, it was that church in Jerusalem that first started sending out messengers with the gospel. And we, and these churches scattered across the Mediterranean, we look back to those early days of the New Testament church and we say, we are so thankful for those folks in Jerusalem that not only believed the gospel and preached the gospel, but sent people into the world with the gospel. So one way we can show our gratitude, our appreciation for their sacrifices, let's help them out now. So now it's our turn to help them out through these material blessings. That was a worthy endeavor, wasn't it? I mean, you hear the Apostle Paul's heart here and you say, Paul, that's great. That's a wonderful thing to do. 
to call on God's people scattered among the churches to sacrificially join together in helping this church that had particular difficulties. But the Apostle Paul was not naive. He knew that when church leaders seek to raise funds, they're opening themselves up to criticism. And he very particularly, very personally, knew he had opponents in the church at Corinth. In fact, a lot of the second letter to the Corinthians, what we know as the second letter to the Corinthians, a lot of this letter is devoted to that issue. That the Apostle Paul was trying to deal with these critics he had in, in the city of Corinth who were defaming him and trying to get the Corinthian church not to believe him or his gospel. And so he writes repeatedly through 2 Corinthians his commitment to Christ and the gospel and that the believers in Corinth needed to listen to the gospel he had and not give in to these detractors from the gospel of Christ. He knew there were people there who would criticize him. So how's he going to handle this? So on one hand, he wants to raise these funds. It's a worthy objective. And yet he knows that if he does it in a way that's not showing integrity, He's going to get criticized. He's going to get people who defame him, and if they defame him, they're going to be indirectly defaming the name of Christ because he was a minister of the gospel of Christ. So how's he going to handle that? We're going to find out here. Paul had a desire. We're in 2 Corinthians again. Paul had a desire for this church to get on board, to get on board with this effort. And he writes to them, some of you were here last week when Pastor Mark preached that first part of chapter 8. Let's go back and read the first five verses again. And I'm going to ask if we can have a map of this area. I want to show you something in a minute. It means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now you can see a map here on the screens. And uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. It's down in this area, Achaia. Up north, there are some churches that if you're familiar with your Bible, some of these will sound familiar to you. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Those would be three of the better known Macedonian churches. Over here in what we know today as Turkey, would have been the Galatian churches. So Paul is soliciting help from churches scattered across the Mediterranean, saying, let's pull our resources. And a lot of them, these folks up here, we just read those five verses in chapter 8. They were giving, they were giving beyond their means. They were joyfully saying, this is such a privilege. Paul, please, please take some more. Please take some more, Paul. And, and there was nothing begrudging about their giving. They were being generous out of joy out of joy for the generosity they've experienced in Christ. And so these folks have already gathered money. There were churches in Galatians that gathered money. Guess who's lagging behind? The folks in Corinth. Now, Paul has already given them some direction in this in his first letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, this is what we read. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside 
and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That's the first letter to the Corinthians. And so he kind of got them started, right? He kind of got them started, even though uh, it wasn't him but Titus who was there at that time. Now months have gone by. Months have gone by, and they still haven't completed their commitment. They made the commitment that they wanted to help with this. So what's Paul going to do? Well, he wants to get them teamed up with these other churches so that there's not one church being left out, but all the churches are combining their money, combining their love, combining their joy, and blessing these saints in Jerusalem. How's he going to handle this without inviting unnecessary criticism? He's going to do everything he can to be above board. And I would like you to think through with me in some detail of what's going on here. And I just want us to appreciate how Paul was so careful. He was so careful to, to operate with integrity that he would be proven trustworthy in this effort to collect money for the saints in Jerusalem. So listen to these steps. I'm going to walk us through some of these steps. First, Paul asked the church in Corinth to raise these funds without him being there personally. I mean, if Paul were there personally going around knocking on people's doors saying, I'm here to get your money for the offering, <laughs> you know, there would be people scratching their heads saying, why are you doing this, Paul? But he's showing integrity and in telling the people, no, you, you go ahead and manage that as a local church even though I'm not there personally. So he writes a letter to them and says, go ahead and get started in this. You guys do that so that when I do come, I'm not personally involved in handling the money. You've already done that. In fact, I want you to pick representatives to help carry this money to Jerusalem. So you pick. So he's showing integrity by distancing himself from the personal handling of the money. So that's one layer. We're, we're seeing one layer of integrity. Here's another layer of integrity. So we have two so far. Paul wasn't doing it personally. And then he asked them to pick representatives to help carry the money. Now that we're back in 2 Corinthians, a second effort, a second effort to get these funds collected, he's taking more precautions. And rather than saying, hey, hey, brothers and sisters in Corinth, uh, you, you need to get with it. I mean, you're behind the times. These other churches have already done this. I'm going to come and I'm going, no, he says, I'm not coming. I'm sending a trusted colleague. I'm going to send Titus. Titus was a man who was very familiar with them. And he, they with him. He'd been there already. And then, okay, that's a third layer of integrity, right? So Paul's not coming personally. Uh, he's asking them to have their representatives. He's sending Titus. And if that's not enough caution, he adds another layer of integrity. He says, Titus isn't going to come by himself. I'm going to have two people come with him. I'm going to have two men come with him. It's going to be a, a, a multiplicity of men who come. There's going to be three guys on that delegation. Now, to add yet another layer of integrity, he says, I didn't pick all three of those guys. These aren't my cronies. In fact, the two guys that we're going to meet in a few minutes beside Titus, the other two delegates, it was the churches that picked them. He says, I didn't, I didn't pick these guys. The churches picked these guys. 
And so he keeps adding layer of layer. And there's actually one more layer of integrity, and you have to stand back and get the big picture here. But when you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Paul says in that passage that there will be seven men who accompany him on the journey to Jerusalem. Now, we read this passage through 21st century Western eyes, and, and maybe, maybe it's a little challenging for us to appreciate the challenges here, but let's put on first century sandals for a few minutes. There were no electronic transfers. There were no credit cards. There were no debit cards. People didn't even write checks back then. It was hard cash. And so the churches of Philippi and the, and the church of Berea and, and the churches in Galatia and, and now the church of Corinth, they're giving hard cash. And, and you start collecting hard cash from a number of churches and it's got to go the whole way to Jerusalem. How's it going to get there? It has to be physically carried on land and on sea. On land and on sea, somebody's got to carry lots of money in hard cash. How's it going to be protected from carelessness? How's it going to be... We're going to have to be really careful here. And so, seven men accompany Paul on this long journey to take these gifts to the church in Jerusalem. You know, you might hear about all this and think, well... Man, isn't he going overboard? I mean, if you wanted to chat with Paul for a few minutes, would you be tempted to say, Paul, that's great that you've added all these layers of integrity, but do you think maybe you're just operating out of the fear of man? Aren't you being too careful, Paul? I mean, don't get bent out of shape over this. You know, the fear of man is a trap. The Proverbs say that. And so we want to be careful that we don't do things just or merely to please people. And yet, I think we need to beware of this temptation to dismiss how we're coming across to other people. I don't think we should be proud to dismiss public accountability. I think sometimes we can have this attitude in our own hearts saying, I don't care what people think. I'm not living in the fear of man. I'll do things the way I think they should be done. I think I'll do things the way I want them to do, as if somehow that's humble. Or is that just pride? You know, there are, there are multiple places in the Bible where we're told to be concerned with how we're coming across with public accountability. I think of what Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, 17. He says, give thought, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Both of those apostles say, take care how you're coming across in public. I, I find it interesting as a pastor that one of the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3.7 is to be thought well of by outsiders, to be thought well of by people outside the church, even non-Christians. Even non-Christians should look at a potential elder candidate and say, that's a respectable man. He handles himself well, his family well, his finances well, his appetites well, that 
to be a, a leader in the church, to be an elder in the church, there's a responsibility to be above reproach, not just in the eyes of the church, but in the eyes of the community. You know, even Jesus himself is a young guy. It says in the end of uh, Luke 2, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. Some of you know this verse, with God and man. Even Jesus was respected by people around him. So back to these three delegates. So we know that there's three delegates Paul is sending to Corinth to finish this task of collecting their offerings for the church in Jerusalem. It would be combined with the offerings from the other churches. Who were these three guys? Let's start with their integrity or their identity, and then we'll look at their uh, character and their heart. But who were they? Well, we know Titus, don't we? He was pretty clearly the leader of this small delegation. He was already well known to the church in Corinth. Uh, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you're going to discover that Titus had already been there. Titus was already in Corinth, and then he traveled to meet Paul, and now he's being sent back. Titus, well known to Paul, one of his much-loved co-workers, protégés, and well known to the church in Corinth. And we know him from other places in the Bible, don't we? We know him from the book of Galatians. We know him from the book that bears his name, Titus. In verse 18, we meet this other brother. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Who was this? I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, there's all kind of conjectures. You know, I, I was reading about this verse and you know, someone says, oh, I think it's this guy, and I think it was this guy, and some of them are famous names, you know, like Luke. Some of them are names that, I don't, who's Sopater? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, people are proposing all these names. You know what? I think if we spend all of our time and energy trying to guess, we're going to be spending our time unwisely. I don't think the point, I think if the Holy Spirit wanted us to know his name, it would be in the Bible. But I find it fascinating. Before we rush on, I think it's fascinating to stop and to realize here, here was a man commended by Paul, commended by God, and yet his name, his name has been lost to history. And it made me wonder, how many times have I done things for my fame? How many times have I done things because I want recognized instead of wanting people to recognize Christ and his grace? And as I was working on this sermon, I had a painful memory come back and I've shared this with the pastors, other pastors. And I debated whether I should tell the story or not, but I think it might be good for my soul and maybe yours as well. But some of you that have been here for a long time know I had the privilege to serve as lead pastor for a long time, 30 some years. But shortly after I passed that baton on to Pastor Nate, the brother who preceded Mark in that role, before I went, about the time I passed that baton on to Nate, um, we pastors went to a gathering of other pastors in Ohio, and uh, the post pastor didn't know me, and he greeted us at the door. And when he greeted me, he said, and you are? And I said, Larry McCall, where are you from? Winona Lake. He goes, oh, you're from Nate's church. And friends, when he said that, I had this ugly pride rise in my soul. 
And I wasn't even anticipating it. I wasn't expecting it. But it was so ugly, it scared me. And I didn't say anything. But when he said, oh, you're from Nate's church? Inside, what I was feeling was, are you kidding me? Do you know how many years I poured blood, sweat, and tears into that church? And you're calling it Nate's church? He's just been doing that for a matter of weeks. And I, I honestly wanted to say that. And it's that ugliness in my heart scared me so much I was shaking. And I went and I found a private place in that building. And I sat for 10 minutes or so and said, Lord, help me. Help me. I knew I was a proud man. But the Lord, I need to address the reality that sometimes I do things for me. That I want to be recognized. And yet to realize that that's not what matters. To not be concerned if my name is known, but the name of Christ would be known. To live for him, to live for that one, that day, and those words, well done. And if you struggle as I do, a word of encouragement from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6 says, God is not unjust. As to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving the saints, as you still do, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, have the same full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? Your name might be lost. Your name might be lost to progeny. Your name might be lost to the coming generations of Christians. Your name might never be known. But it's not forgotten with God. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He takes notes. So friends, when you serve and get no one patting you on the back, when you serve and you're not getting any thank you notes, that's not a reason to quit. That's not a reason to stop and say, well, no one's appreciating me. See if I keep on doing this. But to remember, he knows my name. He knows my And he will reward me according to his grace on that day. And these unnamed brothers we're meeting here, they serve me, they serve us as a reminder of why we serve. We serve not for our fame, but for his. There is a third brother we meet in verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. Paul calls him our brother, uh, whereas the second brother might not have been a co-worker of Paul's, we don't know, uh, this third brother apparently was. And Paul says, we've tested him. And, and that leads me to talk about the character of these three men. We only know the name of one of them, Titus. But even though we don't know the names of the other two, it's fascinating how we know the character of all three of these men. Titus. You know, I'm fascinated with Titus, not only because I have a grandson by that name, but I'm fascinated with Titus because of where you find him. Paul left him on the island of Crete to establish the churches there. And Paul's very clear in that short letter to Titus that, that Crete is a rough neighborhood. 
that's a tough place to serve, Titus. I'm sending you, Titus. I want you, I want you to get these churches established. And there was something about the way God worked in Titus' life that Paul knew, I can trust this guy. I can trust this guy. And he sent him to the very difficult mission field of Crete. Corinth. Corinth. You talk about a rough church. This church had multiplicity of problems. They had deep problems. So who does Paul send? Titus. Not once, but twice. He sends Titus back to Corinth. There's something about the character of this man that he had a, a trust in God that permeated his ministry, that he took on difficult assignments with joy. The second brother, what do we know about this second unnamed brother? Do you see it? He was passionate about the gospel. What a glorious thing to be known for. I don't remember your name, but weren't you that guy that was passionate about the gospel? Yes. <laughs> That's, that counts, you know. That means something when this brother is known for preaching the gospel. That he apparently had such a love for Christ and his gospel and the people who needed the gospel. That's what he was known for. And when the church is up there in Macedonia had to pick somebody, Paul says, you guys pick somebody. You pick someone to go with Titus to Corinth. And he said, ha, him. We want him. We want this guy that's passionate about the gospel. And then this third guy, Paul says, he's been often tested and has been found earnest in many matters. This guy's zealous for the Lord. So even though we lost the names of two of these guys, we know something of their character. But not just their character, but their heart, their passion. Titus had this, Titus had this reputation for being passionate about the Lord. Go back to chapter 7, just for a minute. Chapter 7, beginning halfway through verse 13. Just a page away. And besides our own efforts, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So Paul's writing about Titus's heart, and he says, Titus found joy in this church that had problems. Even though they had problems, he had joy in them. Titus had a heart for people. By the way, before we move on, let me take note of the fact that Paul said, God put in Titus, we're in chapter 8, God put in Titus's heart the same love for you that I have, the same care for you that I have. And Paul acknowledges God's work in Titus's life, but even his acknowledgement of God's work in Titus's life wasn't a private matter. Paul talked about it. He commended the grace of God to Titus in front of other people, in front of the church at Corinth. Now, remember, people in the New Testament era didn't have their own copies of the Bible. And so when they got this letter from Paul, probably one of the elders would say, we got, we got another letter from Paul. Get comfortable, I'm going to read it. And so who, who was the mailman who carried this letter, 2 Corinthians? It was almost surely Titus. Titus and these other two guys, they, they were the mailmen. They, they were the ones who carried 2 Corinthians to Corinth. 
And so one of the elders in Corinth is reading this letter aloud, and he gets to this part that we know as chapter 8, and Paul's commending Titus. Can you imagine being Titus sitting there in the assembly? And all of a sudden you hear, you're not Titus. He's commending the grace of God in Titus's life. And you know, when I read that, I, I think, do I do that? Do I make a point, do I make a habit of pointing out God's grace in other people's lives? That if I see someone demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit to say, I noticed how, how patient you were. What an evidence of God's work in your life. I, I saw how compassionate you were toward that hurting person. I just want you to know I celebrate God's work in your life, that he's given you such compassion. Did I think we as a church, let me just speak as one of your pastors. I think we as a church, I'm so thankful for what God's doing here. I think this is one area we could, I could grow in. To make more of a point of looking, looking for God's grace in people's lives. Expecting the Spirit to bear fruit in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And then when we see it, to talk about it. And to say, oh, I've, seen, I've seen the Spirit's fingerprints on your life. He's made you long-suffering. He's made you patient. He's made, you know, and we're pointing it out. Okay, and then that third guy that we really don't know that much, second and third guy, it says they did all this for the glory of God, earnestness. We just see so many things here about these guys. Now, so what's the takeaway? I mean, here we are today. What's the takeaway for us? You know, this is one of those passages that has very, very little it has very few commands. In fact, there's really none to get to the very last verse. So we want to be careful we don't take a passage like this and start making imperatives, commands. And yet, there are lessons to be learned. I mean, this is a wonderful example. This passage is a wonderful example of how to handle God's money, how to handle the gifts that people give to the mission of Christ in a way that's above integrity. But I think, quickly, some takeaways that I think we all enjoy and appreciate. One is our willingness to serve, even as I mentioned, that our zeal for serving, even in a difficult situation, comes from our um, swimming in the gospel, swimming in the grace of God, that our motivation to serve isn't from accolades we get, appreciation we get, but it's purely a response to God's grace to us. I think another way that we can uh, learn from this passage is that, as I just said, uh, more regularity in commending the work of God in other people's lives. The fact that this was an inter-church effort, let's not miss that. I mean, as Americans, it's tempting even as local churches to stand on our independence. I don't know that that's a biblical concept, friends. We're one church among many. To recognize that and appreciate what God's doing in other churches, even here in our community. And at CCC, you know, we... We join shoulder to shoulder with some other churches here in our community to help support ministries like Heartline and CCS and Fellowship Mission. And that's a good thing. But we're also part of a family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches. And, and we work together in seeing the gospel go out around the world. I just read an email last week of how many churches around the world are being impacted through Sovereign Grace in the Philippines and in Liberia and and in Australia, it's just going, different countries in Africa, it's, it's going around the world. And I think we're just one church among many of spreading the gospel. And it's wonderful to remember we're part of a family of churches. 
And I think we should have an appreciation for the people that handle the gifts we give with integrity. I've never been part of that team, and now it's been my choice, my commitment over the years. And I actually had to ask, when we put money in the offering box, or remember offering plates when we used to pass the plate? You know, if you put money in the offering plate, or you put it in the offering box, or even if you give it online, what happens to that? What happens after you let go of your check or your cash in the offering box? I want to publicly commend our deacons and our finance team for the way they handle God's money with integrity. And when I inquired, how does it work? <laughs> this is what I found out. That when those offering boxes are opened, there's always at least two of our deacons there. There's never an individual who does that. There's always more than one. And then those brothers together go and put it in the safe. And then when the safe is open to make the bank deposit, there's always two people present. Everybody's signing papers. Everybody's acknowledging, you know, that this is the amount. And, and, and then that money goes to the bank. And then people get records. And there are more than one person gets signed off. People get reports. Finance committee, deacons, pastors get reports of, you know, this, this much money was given. And there's just integrity down the line. And you know what? I don't know who all that is. And I'm one of the pastors. And so I want to acknowledge that we have people in our church who serve faithfully in making sure that the monies we give are handled with integrity. And they don't get pats on the back. They don't get thank you notes. They do it to serve Christ. And I publicly thank you all who are involved with that. But there is a direct application from this passage, isn't it? And we get it at the last verse, 24. Give proof. Give proof before the churches. That as we are generous as a church, we're impacting our sister churches. The point here is to be generous. To be generous. Come on, Corinthians, let's be generous. And we hear that call to us today. And um, I, I appreciate so much what Pastor Mark said last week in a sermon. He said, the fruit of Christian generosity should be supplied by the root of God's grace. Let me say that again. The fruit of Christian generosity should be supplied by the root of God's grace. Did I get it right, Pastor Mark? That's memorable. You know, you think about what motivates people to give, Christians and non-Christians. What motivates people to give their money for social causes, for Christian causes? There's a lot of answers to that, isn't there? Well, I need a tax write-off. Well, I have some extra you know, we have these reasons why we give. Or some people say, I just, I, I feel like I owe it, you know. Like, God's done, done so much for me, I, I should give him some of, I should give some of it back, you know. We have all these motivations. But you read this section of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and there's actually a different reason to give than mere obligation or tax write-offs or, hey, I got more than I need. There's a motivation of joy. A motivation of joy, of I live, I live in, the, in the context of grace. I live in the context of the gospel, that I am his, that God has given me his own son. He's given me Jesus Christ. Oh, what a generous father I have. 
that he's given the one who is most precious, the most precious to him. He's not withheld his son. He's given us his son. And to, to revel in that, to marvel in that, to look at how generous he's been to me. Can I not trust him? Can I not trust him? He's dealt with my, my bigger issue of needing a new heart. Can I not trust him to make sure I have food to eat and a home to live in? Can I not trust him who's given me the greater thing? Can I not trust him with the lesser thing? There's a, a joyful trust. I remember years ago reading the story about a cynic of Christians visiting an, an old Christian man, a widower who was extremely poor. And all he had was some dry bread and some water. And he said to his guests, let's thank the Lord before we eat this bread. And his friend said, you're going to thank the Lord for that? And the old man pointed to his bread and said, all of this in Christ too? Yeah, all of this in Christ too. The marvel of it all. That as Christians, what the gospel does is it, it pries our fingers. It pries our fingers off of the idol of materialism. Or we think, it's my money, I earned it, I'm keeping it, I might need it. And out of fear or selfishness, we hang on to our stuff. We hang, in, hang on to our money as if somehow that's the answer in life. We're going to find joy in that. But the gospel teaches us that Christ is precious. That he, what did we sing? What did we sing today? All I have is Christ. Did you sing that from your heart? All I have is Christ. That frees our hands up, friends. That frees our hands up. That we say, I have Christ. And we end up being like the Macedonians, begging for the opportunity to give more. Yes. I'm looking forward to the rest of chapter nine next week as we get into that passage. I hope you come back and that the Lord would continue to work in our hearts as a church that we would be people who show our joy in Christ, our confidence in Christ and living generously. Would you join me in praying for that? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ. Lord, he is the most precious one. He is the gift of all gifts. He's the indescribable gift the one that goes beyond imagination. Help us as a people, help us as a church to revel in the gospel and in doing so, Lord, that we might live generously with our time, with our things, with our money, all for the cause of your name, that you might be the honored one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.